from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 901, Security Chaos Engineering with guest Kelly Shortridge, recorded Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Hi, this is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Today, my guest is Kelly Shortridge, who is a senior principal at Fastly and the lead author of Security Chaos Engineering, Sustaining Resilience in Software and Systems by O'Reilly Media. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I love a little chaos engineering. It's been a recurring topic for me over the years. You know, spending my time in scaling websites and stuff, you really hit a point where the only way you really knew if you were resilient was to introduce weirdness. Yeah. You know, in, in, and in this, in the stone age, it was just pull a power cord and see what happened. But, you know, software got better than that eventually. We we're able to take a service host offline, that kind of thing, and just see how it recovered. Plus, n- none of your ideas were ever as creative as what actually happened in the industry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The real world, like, truth is stranger than fiction, right? So, whatever weird scenario you dream up is never going to be Not as even fantastical close. as what happens. Yeah. <laughs> it is astonishing, actually. I got to grab on this title, Senior Principal. Like, yes. It's sort of a generalized name, right? Like this is the principal as in like the principal of a high school kind of thing. But a senior principal in the context of security work? What does that mean? Sure. So I'm in the office of the CTO. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think about is the future of security. So senior principal, it's you're not really – I mean, sometimes you can be doing like kind of day-to-day coding and like you're working on projects, but you're thinking a lot more big picture. You're thinking a lot more strategically rather than focused on kind of more minute tasks. I will say sometimes it is misspelled as principle, as in like a concept, which I actually find very empowering. It's like, yes, I am a senior like concept or philosophical idea. Yes. Um, so I, I try to roll with that. But I don't just have principles. I have senior principles. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, in general, I feel like um, what... How I at least interpret the role is very much thinking about like, okay, what are the kind of pattern matching things that you can do based on your expertise and your experience um, that can level up the overall organization rather than, again, just kind of going going down a list of tasks. Well, and a certain amount of field work helps that, right? Just to sort of poke at your head with these are the problems today. This is the thing we're battling. And then to also have the room to take a step back and say, does this speak to an overarching principle going on. Definitely. I think there's a problem sometimes both with, because my background um, is also in the product side of things. Um, Actually, most of my career has been as a product leader. And I do think there's a tendency both in product and engineering to be very insular. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that is what you need. But when you think about, especially in emerging areas, whether that's like serverless compute, which obviously Fastly does, and I, I think about a lot, and certainly areas like security chaos engineering, resilience stress testing, All of those are very emerging areas and you're not just going to find the answers within, right? You have to be talking to people who are also thinking about this and doing this. You have to be looking at kind of the broader market and understanding the ongoing dynamics and like shifts coming up. So it's balancing that kind of like external and internal purview and also influence. 
in both directions. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and of course, you guys are always up against the edge anyway and running into new issues. So naturally, it's going to you're, you're going to have you might as well anticipate the problem before you have it. Yes, that that's the idea. Yeah. Well, scalability seems to mean a different thing these days. And but I would argue the same thing is truly resilience. Do you get into defining the term? Like, what does it mean today to be resilient? Oh, yeah, I, I have a liberal arts background. So one of my like hills I die on is that words should mean things. And you Weird. see a lot like I saw. I know, right? It's it's an astonishing proposition in the in 2023. But one thing I see is certainly the cybersecurity industry is rebranding. Everything is resilience, kind of they like they rebranded. Everything is zero trust, which oh, sure. means nothing is zero trust or nothing is resilient. To me, resilience, what I love about it is it has a huge, pre- like longstanding precedent in other domains that right. all have kind of agreed on a definition, which is the ability to prepare for, plan for, and adapt to failure, right? It's right. the ability to respond gracefully to the failure and then evolve as ongoing conditions evolve. And to me, that is kind of the North Star definition. And it's really the heart of it is that adaptation. Like, can you make sure that you are flexible enough to change how you operate so you can succeed on an ongoing basis, right? Because the world doesn't stay the same. The world changes and we need to be able to adapt to that. And certainly when more acutely when failure happens, the way I've seen it defined, unfortunately, is more like robustness, which is like, okay, thing happens. We need to bounce back to the original. Right. But certainly in the context of cybersecurity, that's problematic because, Whatever was the original thing and there was an attack, it means the original was vulnerable to that attack. So what we want to bounce back to that yeah. vulnerable normal, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Give me back to my vulnerable state, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, resilience, I mean, seems to be that two part about recovering from failure, but also to evolve to not have that failure again, where robustness would be more of the recover from the failure and continue. Exactly. Yeah, it's that it's that feedback loop and learning piece that is, I think, the essence of resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just survive, but thrive. Precisely. Um, I, I'm going down the genetic side of that, although I'm much more a language guy. I was immediately going to go, so you still believe in figuratively and literally? Because <laughs> apparently nobody else does. Like, it might just be you and me now. I, I do adopt colloquialisms like that. It's it's more when we're in a technical discipline. And in theory, the way cybersecurity, ta- cybersecurity takes itself extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, okay, if that's true, then we need the words to mean things. And we can't just be, you know, redefining things for whatever marketing flavor of the week, which is what happens. So. But I would also speak to just like security, resiliency is one of those things that's like this unachievable goal. You're always trying to become more resilient. There is no endpoint. That's correct. Yeah, the way to think about it is resilience is a verb. Mm-hmm. I think that we can actually measure, measuring resilience is hard. I think in some sense, it's actually easier than what is secure, right? I heard CISOs talk about, you know, they have percent risk coverage. What does that mean? I have no idea what that yeah, metric means, right? Sounds cool, though. That'll get you a decent right. size bill. Exactly. But with resilience, you can look at things like the Dora metrics, like time to restore service. Mm-hmm. You can look at, you know, how quickly you can deploy changes, because if you can deploy some sort of feature change on demand, it means you can deploy security fixes on demand, right? Like Once you start to think about resilience, it means that you can start aligning, I think, security more with just reliability engineering and all the things that engineers kind of already want to achieve for high quality services. Which uh, helps, too, because it's I think there's a... Too, still too much isolation of security inside of the organization anyway. Like, Absolutely. I have been in companies where they call, oh, the the the, the uh, productivity inhibitors are approaching, you know, like. The, department of no. Yeah, department of no. Well, that was all sysadmin. Like, that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Although we, you know, we try to be friendly. So it says no, any questions? That's yes. The improv thing is yes and, right? I feel like that's the new <laughs> way. Yeah. 
as opposed to no, why are you asking? Mm -hmm. So where does chaos engineering come into this? And again, I'm coming this from the old web dev point of view with chaos monkey. Is it the same thing? Yes. So with chaos engineering, and I use it interchangeably with resilient stress testing, which is what literally every other domain calls it. Um, the, the underlying principle is you want to simulate adverse conditions to see how your system responds end to end. So when we think about, again, that capacity to adapt, you need to be able to learn from failure and you need to be able to change, ideally, the design of the system or its operation to be able to better prepare for that failure in the future. And so when you inject these adverse conditions, which is a chaos experiment, then you're able to, again, see how the system behaves end to end. And I do like to stress that it's about the socio-technical system. Because I think whether you're talking about reliability or cybersecurity, if you generate an alert, but the responder can't do anything with that, right. that's not a success. You're not successfully recovering from failure. So it's not just did the thing in a minute alert, though that's important because a lot of times our tools don't work the way we anticipate. It's also was that alert actionable? Like how quickly could they take action? Um, you know, how successful was the recovery? Again, we're looking at that end to end picture to understand our systems better. So, I mean, in some ways it's like, is your seam useful? The S-E-I-E-M sort of. If I create a prompt that appears to be a potential uh, a breach in progress, is it detected? Did you did you know what to do? What actions were taken? What playbook got deployed? Like in some ways, this almost feels more like the same thing we're doing with phishing trials you know, inside of our organizations to see if folks are learning not to click on inappropriate links. But now we're doing it to our security professionals. Yes, I think in contrast to phishing experiments, which I disparage frequently because I think the evidence is mixed that they actually help anything. Yeah. The key insight with chaos experiments is that we don't want to just blame the human or assign training to the human or awareness training, whatever it is. We want to change the design, right? So if something's confusing, that's an opportunity to make it less confusing. Um, if, you know, recovery was slow, maybe there's automated actions that we mm -hmm. can build into the system. Um, I, I definitely caution. And in the in the book I released, I have a whole bunch of stuff on kind of like the behavioral biases that lead us to like point fingers at humans and settle for the convenient solution, which is, again, trying to retrain the human. The thing is, though, with resilience, you have to work with human behavior, not against sure. it. And these cancer experiments help expose, again, system behavior, machine behavior, but also the human behavior. So you can better understand how do we need to tinker with stuff so people Basically, you make the easy and fast way the resilient or secure way. Well, and we certainly argued back on the whole phishing trial thing saying, hey, MFA and removing local admin privileges are far more useful strategies to decrease the likelihood that when a human makes a perfectly normal human mistake, that the consequences are not dire. Precisely. They, or, or more importantly, root cause analysis being be more careful next time, not doesn't work. Like that's not a thing. <laughs> no, no. Not in, I think, at any point in the course of human history has that strategy worked. <laughs> yeah, it's not not the right uh, answer there. And so by that token, it's, it, it is, is it, hey, was it obvious? Was the next logical steps also obvious? Like, you know, do you not have to have instant insight to be able to figure this out that it can be seen? But are, are we primarily looking at our our response to potential exploits when we're using chaos engineering. Part of me looked at this one. Is this a kind of pen testing? Like, did we just try to push from the outside? Sort of. So pen testing is, I think, a different beast. And I'll, I'll spare your listeners on my thoughts on how it's evolved or devolved over the years. 
the idea it's much more similar to again kind of the classic chaos experiments on the reliability side like you mentioned chaos monkey mm -hmm. so i built like a chaos um, experimentation tool on fastly's like edge compute platform that basically strips it's actually available on the fastly dev thing if anyone wants to play around with it so it's um it strips cookies um, and forces cross-origin requests to basically verify that your service like actually requires cookies, like on right. a login page, or again, um, disallows cross-origin requests. And it can be something as simple as that. Like it doesn't have anything to do with exploits. It's just again, it's um, I the way I like to think about attacks is attackers target are this will always be true assumptions, and that's right. the best place to start with these experiments. It's like we assume our site will always require cookies, like. Maybe we can run a continuous experiment just to verify that that's the case because you never know when some new change is going to break that assumption, right? So it can be really basic things like that up to, like you said, like really fancy exploitation if you want. But honestly, if you look at the case studies in the book and then also just people I talk to, there's, there's so much lower hanging fruit than the exploitation scenario in terms of validating your either, again, security or reliability assumptions. Yeah, yeah. No, I love the stripping cookie things, but also that all assumptions need to be attacked. The problem is it's not always obvious that we even have some of these assumptions. Yeah. That is true. Um, that is why I am a huge um, proselytizer of decision trees. Mm -hmm. which basically force you to document your assumptions. It's borrowing from behavioral game theory, which basically shows kind of like chess masters when they map out, you know, okay, if I make this move, then this person will make this move and so forth. During the design phase, um, I've worked with software engineers to basically map out those kind of assumptions where it's like, okay, like let's say an attacker wants to get like our sensitive video recordings in an S3 bucket. What's the easiest way for them to get it? It's like, well, if it's available on like the Wayback machine, that's, that's done, yeah. Over, right? Yeah. Or, um, you know, if it's just a public bucket, that's easy. And you start to really think about, OK, what's the easiest way the attacker could get to this goal? And then what can we do? We can have access control less like setting it private. We can make sure to have two factor like on our admin or dev credentials. It's like you start really thinking through like, OK, if we do that. OK, now the attacker is going to have to what, like intercept the SMS. It's like, OK, use app based two factor. And it's like, well, now they're going to have to like somehow compromise the device. They're probably not going to do that. They'll next move on to, you know, again, finding like a vulnerability and our like web app. It's really getting you to just think about the if this, then that sort of workflow from both the attack and then like what mitigations you can put in perspective, which really helps enumerate your again, this will always be true assumptions like our buckets will always be private. Yeah, probably you want to verify that. Right. But, you know, I, th I think it's what I would call it a sand table exercise. But what's awesome about that is just do the exercise. Then read down the list with your contrarian mind and attack every assumption. Like you kind of can't do both at the same time, but by going through the exercise so you have the documentation, then you have that editor's mind where you can go through what you just wrote down and said, how would we test each of these? What assumptions were in each of these? And are they true? Yes. That, that two pieces together, I think is where you actually, anyone can do this if you can, because you can always do the sand table exercise. That's not that hard, but that how do I seem less like a crazy tinfoil hat person and just someone who's just gone through a list and look both sides of each statement we made in a perfectly normal workflow? Yes. And so there's a tool I created called Deciduous. It's open source um, that allows you to basically build the decision trees as YAML and then you get like a nice graphic and all that. So you can actually collaborate on this through like pull requests and like that whole workflow, which is great because you can tap like, let's say your on-call engineer that deals with whatever kind of like service that you're um, like decision treeing 
um, in whatever your current diagram is like that person, that on-call person can basically call BS on like whatever assumptions or be like, well, have you thought about this and this? And they can do that by introducing again, um, whatever nodes they want into like a pull request. And then it's a really great way that you can kind of flesh out the tree, refine the tree on an ongoing basis too. So you don't just have like this calcified threat model that never gets updated. Um, Why this, you're doing deciduous like the tree. Yes, that was, I thought I was really clever with that naming, Mm. uh, naming the tool that. So it's deciduous.app, but again, it's on GitHub um, open source, but it's having that visual representation also my view, like rather than a list really helps people kind of, again, think through their kind of mental model of what's going to unfold. But yeah, on-call engineers are especially great at calling uh, PS on some of those assumptions. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, I told you that we should implement this three years ago and it never happened. So, you know, let Mm -hmm. their, let their rage get out a little bit. It makes everything better. Sure. But also putting it into the tree so they show where it fits also helps us to go sell it upstairs too. Like, Precisely. I'm, I always, this is the battle I'm up against often. It's just the, you know, you'll seem too crazy when we describe it this way. How do we just break it down into something that anybody could absorb right. and, and increase our likelihood of getting funding? And Kelly, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This episode is run as is brought to you by the Azure Data Conference at the Walt Disney Swan and Dolphin Resort in Orlando, Florida, December 5th to 7th. With keynotes by Microsoft Corporate Vice President of Azure Data, Arun Gulag, and CVP Jessica Hawk, you'll hear from the Microsoft leadership about where data is going at Microsoft, both on-premises and in Azure. Industry experts and speakers from Microsoft will help you learn proven problem-solving techniques and technologies you can implement immediately and gain insight into Microsoft's data strategies for the cloud and on-premises. Get answers to performance monitoring, troubleshooting, designing for scale and performance, working in the cloud, and exploring all the new features of the latest versions of Azure Data and Microsoft SQL Server. The Azure Data Conference is co-located with the Azure and AI Conference and Dev Intersection. Attend the show and you'll be at the intersection of an incredible array of learning opportunities, and your ticket gives access to all the events. The Azure Data Conference is at the Walt Disney Swan and Dolphin Resort in Orlando, Florida, December 5th to 7th. Use the code RUNAS to get a discount on your registration at azuredataconf.com, and I'll see you there. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Kelly Shortridge. We're talking a little bit about her book on security chaos engineering. And of course, as soon as I heard deciduous, I thought, when did the leaves fall off? Uh, But I don't know that that's part of the intent. Just a tool designed to walk through all the assumptions around. I mean, you could think of through a lot of workflows too. We, you know, Run As, for better or worse, has accumulated a set of shows with very smart security people painting incredibly terrifying scenarios. Right. now Which I feel I, I kind of find a disservice to be honest. I, I totally agree. And it's unfortunate. Like it's great to surface these things, but I feel like we need to contextualize them better. Like as, as soon as you talked about the tools, like, you know, the thing I'd like to exercise on that is an install exploit mm-hmm. where the machine is pretty locked down. But when the new software comes in and some, and, a, and an account with some administrative privileges needs to show up to allow that install to happen. There's these tools out there, you know, black hat tools that'll take advantage of that. Like walking through those scenarios is really interesting. Like that, that is where you say, okay, now how would we contend with this rather than just be frightened by it? Exactly. Yeah. And with deciduous, which again is a pun 
on uh, both the decision tree and then the tree part, right? Um, mm-hmm. So with decisions, you can actually map basically, okay, we introduced this mitigation. What is it going to force the attacker to do? Instead, you can kind of track like where they're sent back to the drawing board, which I think surfaces, for instance, like, yeah, there are probably readily available tools that will help them like defeat those kind of defenses, even if it's locked down. Probably not what they're going to jump to immediately, though, is like backdooring like you know, this underlying CPU, like the super scary supply chain grain of rice. They, like, they're not going to do that. And no. so again, a decision tree can help you kind of like temper that enthusiasm because it's I, it's very flattering to think that a nation state will target you that way. But realistically, like that's not what's no. going to happen. <laughs> it's folks yeah. trying to make, make a buck. And if they wanted to work hard, they wouldn't be thieves. So, yeah. you know. Fair enough, yeah. But they they certainly have spent more time on this than many of us have. You know, it's pretty mm-hmm. common that we're only part time on security and you only get once in a while to think about this stuff. So I think it's very challenging to to even get enough time to think about it as much as, as the folks that are trying to attack you are, are going there. I actually I I sometimes push back on that because when working on these decision trees, I sometimes find software engineers are better at the threat modeling mm-hmm. when they're kind of prompted in this way. Because attackers are much closer to software engineers or sysadmins or SREs than security people, right? Because they're writing tools, they're writing code for like whatever their operation is. They're having to monitor the system to make sure they don't tear up over thresholds. They're having to, you know, come up with scripts on the fly and all this stuff. A lot of it is just software engineering, right? Sure. So if you think about it as like, okay, I'm really pissed off at my employer. Like, how would I traverse the system and do something maliciously? Sometimes the software engineers come up, especially with those like, like, life hack or like thrifty ways to compromise the system the software engineers often jump to that while the security people jump to more what they read in like the threat intel reports and stuff like that which can apply but that's more generic than like the i think one thing that often is missing i guess with the cybersecurity people is they don't have the context of the system whereas software engineers do and that very much changes how you threat model yeah in in some ways almost a polluted mind i've uh when it was my data center I often brought senior devs in through a weekend on a scaling crisis. Just a, I like them to see how we fight the fight. Uh, and often they had insights because they knew how the stuff had been built that we just couldn't see from the outside. Right. Yeah. And I, I just wonder if the same sort of thing would happen occasionally in security where it's like their insight into how software works and how those interchanges go on might be just the thing to say, oh, here's a shortcut for that. Like we could bypass it with this little thing. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So one example I gave in my Black Hat talk a few weeks ago that – I never really hear security people talk about, but it is an insight that a software engineer could have is using um, like queues and message brokers mm-hmm. for vuln exploitation cases because you can almost effectively create a temporary air gap where you like take service B offline. Service A can still send its request. The queue fills up. You can heal up and patch the you know service B and then get it back offline. You have an affected overall system availability. And, like right. You just saved a bunch of like secure dev training because the impact was very low, right? Um, and that's something that, again, it's when I talk to software engineers, they often think about things like that. How do we extend kind of the practices we already use to cover these security use cases in a way that a lot of security engineers, there are some that are thinking this way, but a lot of them just aren't. Yeah, and if you're not savvy to those asynchronous messaging systems, and why would you be, right? Like that's clearly in a de- senior dev space, you don't understand that, hey, I can take server A down and B will be fine and vice versa and nothing will be lost. Like it will can it'll recover. 
it's not, use your term, naturally resilient. Yes, precisely. I mean, I think I, the bet that I placed, which you you can see that in the book, is that security is going to start to look more like platform engineering, at least Mm -hmm. when it comes to AppSec, not you know, securing your laptops or whatever, that's a kind of separate thing. But I think at some point you have to learn about the systems or understand the systems you're trying to protect. And you do have to learn about more of these software engineering sort of things. That's my hot take. Well, I mean, let's face it, the conversation for the past few years has been very much, we're all writing some code. Yes. Uh, you know, and it actually makes sense to use source control for your scripts these days. Uh, Definitely. I'm, I'm fascinated by how much nicer code I write when I think somebody else is going to see it. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. It, it, it's better code. Yeah, for sure. And the ability to revert is also great. You know, I'm a huge fan of, you know, I see, I think in sometimes infrastructure's code can sometimes be misapplied by software engineers, but mm-hmm. I actually think some of infrastructure's code's biggest benefits come on the security side. Without a doubt. Like, I've, I've always yeah. in the back of my head that one of these days I need to write a book called like DevOps, when to throw a party. Yeah. And <laughs> when, when sysadmins go to developers and say, hey, teach me about this source control thing, mm-hmm. that's a good time to throw a party. Like, that's a good day because yes, it's, ah, we all recognize we're writing code and it needs care and feeding and we can support each other. Uh, though, you know, though the dev folks have been doing that for a while, they'll know some tricks that'll make your life a little easier. Absolutely. Uh, it's come up on the show before, and I've had in my mind to uh, to go after Sunil Yu to come on and talk about this a bit. Because you get into it in the book, I think, as well, of the sort of die model versus the CIA model. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so I am a big fan of any sort of security by design. Obviously, it's a hot topic with mm-hmm. CISA, the agency, talking about it. Die is one way to think about some of the design-based of mitigations you can put in place. So with distributed, obviously that can have a bunch of benefits. I would argue that, um, you know, someone, obviously I'm a little biased, but something like using a CDN, it's going to be pretty effective at reducing the impact of like a DDoS, right? It's right. just the nature of distributed computing. So it's- You're handling my CDN. That's what it was built for. Have a great time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just built in when you use the CDN, right? Things like immutable infrastructure, I kind of think is- if you can disable SSH access, which not everyone can, sometimes mm-hmm. auditors weirdly get mad about that. But if you can disable that, you can make it so that like a host or workload is immutable. It's going to be much harder for attackers to tamper with it, compromise it, disrupt it, whatever you want, right? Like they kind of depend on being able to make changes. Um, and that's something that, again, is not a thing security people think about all the time, but you might want immutable infrastructure as a software engineer for other reasons, certainly SREs and sysadmins often um, want to make sure devs don't YOLO around in prod, so they're happy with it too. Um, and then E is in the die triad is for ephemeral. Mm-hmm. And ephemerality basically means attackers have a really hard time persisting. So like a serverless function only lives for however many seconds and then it dies. The attacker's either going to have to like recompromise it or find a way to like within that period of time escape onto the host. And it's just like it's a lot of effort yeah. from the attacker's perspective. Especially when you think in terms of breaches running for months, like getting into the habit of just rebuilding containers on a routine basis, like actually introducing additional ephemerality into the system. For another reason, it just makes it harder for the bad for bad things to persist. Exactly. Yep, that's, that's, that's that's the underlying principle. And 
in the book, I um, extended a lot. I have a, just a monstrous list of like, here are all the kind of design-based things you can think about. Again, things like um, message brokers and queues. There's also just standardization. If you can build like paved roads that standardize certain patterns, um, that's obviously hugely influential in eliminating certain like vectors by design. Isolation is just a massive one. Um, I think isolation is really the unsung hero of cybersecurity. My hot take is because most innovation and isolation has come from outside of cybersecurity. So right. we don't we don't tout it too much. But yeah, with isolation, it's just anytime you wrap like anything in a membrane, right, you're able to limit impact. And we're never going to get rid of bugs. We can never fully eliminate vulnerabilities. So no. being able to contain that impact is huge. Well, and it gets back to when zero trust wasn't like something you got in a squirt bottle and sprayed on your service <laughs> and everything's good, that each one of those membranes actually represents a security boundary and each time right. and that is hard on the bad guy that each time they have to jump through one of those things they have a tougher time um now i mean i just sort of said cia versus die and i don't think they're a versus thing it's confidential integrity availability distri uh, distributed immutable and ephemeral they seem complementary i think so i kind of caution with cia just because in practice i think we've seen a lot of focused on c some focus on I and very little focus on A, even though if you think about business priorities, it's probably reversed. Right. Because businesses want their money printer to be available and printing money yeah. is the way I analogize it. Um, but in security, we've kind of just left that to, again, like SREs, um, sysadmins, like we've, I think, forgotten. So that's that's where I take umbrage is kind of how CIA has manifest, manifested in practice. In theory, they're not mutually exclusive at all. But right. I do think... There's a subtle difference where how do you have a confidential system? You can have a distributed or immutable or ephemeral system. Those are like system qualities. It's harder to have like a high integrity system. Like it's it's squishier, if that makes sense. So I yeah. do like the diatriad for that reason. When it, it feels like you can just hang around the confidentiality space, sticking it on anything and not yeah. really making the situation better. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, and availability to me is just another is a variation on resilience. A resilient yeah. system is available. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of how reliability and resilience overlap, and I actually think security is woven into reliability, which again is not a common take, I suppose. But again, like I think if you, I like the APC triad as well for reliability. Like it's availability, performance, and correctness. Because right. like if your service isn't available because of a DDoS or ransomware that's a problem if it's slow that could be an attacker like hijacking resources like crypto mining and if it's not correct that means it's not working as either the dev or users intend and that could be abusing an api or like exfiltrating credentials like there's there's or sensitive data um, i think that perspective again helps you start to think about okay maybe we can look at the things that we're doing to create more reliability or like a more reliable service. And how can we extend that to make sure it covers security as well? Which I think mm -hmm. that is when things start to get really interesting and powerful. But you get the perception of the customer in the end. It's not reliable to lose their information or to have it stolen by someone else. Like yeah. the, the customer is not going to get too hung up on the fancy buzzwords. You still did them wrong. You broke an expectation yeah. that if I exactly. share my information with you, you won't share it with anyone else without my permission. Exactly. And I, I personally subscribe to the view that bugs are a breakdown of intentions between different layers of abstractions. That's mm -hmm. that's my view. And, and I think so much of this, whether you're thinking about resilience or reliability or security, really comes down to intent and whether things whether the system is working as intended. That's the holy grail of like formal methods, right? Is being able to mathematically specify like this is working exactly as we intend, which is why it's never been solved. Right. 
Yeah. And it's, and it, A, intentions change, but B, it's like you'll never press every edge on this. Right. So there's always something that could go on. But that, you know, when we got to the past, the obvious points, that's where the chaos equation came in. It's like, let's just come up with other things. Mm -hmm. But uh, to sandbox through some of your workflows and come up with other ideas, like what if we didn't have cookies? What would happen? Like just to know what happens, much less is this an exploit? And then before it becomes an exploit, say, well, this is what we intend to happen if they're missing. Right. I view it as every experiment helps you fill in kind of like the picture. If you want like a 3D model, kind of like game designers do to understand how an object looks in different lighting, you're kind of doing the same thing with experiments, right? Mm -hmm. You get this one perspective and that's almost like the tile and the mosaic. And then you get this other one. And eventually, once you conduct a lot of different experiments, you start to have a decent fidelity understanding of your system, obviously that system changes over time. So that's why you need to keep conducting experiments and running them continuously. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I noticed uh, at no point in this conversation so far, we've really talked about like sort of the optimal scenario, like what's the first thing you should do. I don't even know if that matters at this point. The first things are on the OWASP list and they're pretty obvious. And if you haven't dealt with sanitizing your inputs, the rest of this isn't going to matter. But yeah, there's definitely a point um, that I think is in chapter uh, eight on how to conduct the experiments. That's basically, listen, if you already know you're not doing something, there's no point in conducting an experiment. You need to fix the thing. Yeah. Then once you have the fix, that means you now have an assumption that it's solved. And that's when you start conducting the experiment. Right. There's a danger of just conducting experiments as a substitute for actually putting in the work, which is not great either. Well, and you've also got to get through, like, have we really sanitized all our inputs? How would you test that? Right. Yeah. You know, you can, we'd be told all day that that's true, but, and, you know, pen testing would be one approach to this, but I, I think you've come with an idea of a, a more interesting strategy that presses against more of it. Yeah. And it could be self-serve. For sure. Yeah. That's really the a power thing is being self-serve for software engineering teams is really helpful because pen tests require a lot of time and effort to coordinate. And again, they can be very valuable sources of information, but they don't always show again that like end to end picture of things. Yeah. And I would think you'd want to do a whole lot of experiments before you went to an external pen tester with that expense and effort. Yeah. Just to see, you know, the real goal when you're going through a pen tester is that you stymied them. Right. Or that they, and odds are you don't, they're going to at least get one layer in, but as soon as they can't pull laterals, like you're going to get a gold star. Like most of the time, these guys are happy when they get their lateral in. And if they can't get their lateral in, you've done something right. Oh, definitely. And I actually encourage people to ask their pen testing shop, whoever it is, to create decision trees for exactly how they traverse the system. So to specify like, well, this is the first thing we tried. And then this, we encountered this roadblock and here's how we adapted because that's a great place again, to kind of look at the decision tree they created and then compare that with the one you had created. That's a fantastic way to kind of uncover like where you're in general missing assumptions about your system. Yeah. It's it'd be great to take that external force and, and go through there, how they went about it and just, all right, this is how we're going to make the system better. Uh, book is fresh, right? Like it was literally this year that you got the full book out. So yes. Yes. You've got a little you've got a little time before it's going to need a revision, but I'm sure things will change. Oh, of course things will change, right? Some of the examples I use like are very kind of of the moment, but I really tried to focus on what's evergreen advice. Mm-hmm. Um, what are things that are going to be true next year as well as ideally like 20 or 30 years, hopefully beyond. Again, with resilience Ultimately, a lot of it is just about how complex systems behave and how we yeah. cope with the weirdness that emerges. So a lot of it is just, again, kind of a fundamental philosophical shift or how you should think about it. Because there are evergreen things like we need to understand like 
the critical functions of our system. We need to understand its dynamics or interactions across space-time. We need to understand the thresholds beyond which it tips into failure. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to learn from it. And we also need to be willing to change the system based on those learnings. That's never going to go out of style, right? Oh, that's fair. And uh, yeah, I, I can think of weirder things we're doing, especially in this past year with all the large language model stuff. Oh my gosh, yes. But a lot of those essences are still there. Uh, Kelly, so much fun to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, the book is Security, Chaos, Engineering, Sustaining Resilience in Software and Systems, available from O'Reilly and all your good bookstores. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. Radio.